Now, I hope you bought some popcorn tonight because you're going to be hearing as much from a movie screen in bits as you are from me. Well, some of you just got really excited. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will open that up in just a moment. If you have a Bible there, open up to the book of 3 John. That's where I'm going to start. Third John, and it only has one chapter, and I'm going to do one verse. Just one. <laughs> no, actually, it's not the first verse, it's the second. <laughs> Quick recap before I go there, so just get that ready, and then I will, um, I will uh, pick us up there in just a second. So over the last couple of weeks, we have, well, let's say over the last couple of years, we've been on this theme of taking ground. And as I said last week, we've been kind of alternating between taking ground through us and taking ground in us. And at the moment, we're in a taking ground in us stage because we're only going to take ground through us in terms of fulfilling our destiny and making earth look like heaven to the extent that the kingdom of God is taking ground in us. We don't have authority over stuff on the outside that we haven't conquered on the inside. Straight kingdom principle right there. That private victory precedes public victory. And yet we look at stories like David with Goliath. Brilliant story. I have known it since I was like two or three years old from Sunday school. And if you've been in church a long time, this is one of the famous stories. And we, I don't, we used to sing songs about that, didn't we? With the sling and the... Do you remember that, Franklin? What was the song with the sling and the... The which one? Only a boy like that. That's the one. Yes. Yes. That's where I kind of found less. Margaret knows it well. Do you want to come sing it, Margaret? Okay. <laughs> well, it's joyful and it's noisy and it doesn't say anything about being in tune or classy. Just, just joyful noise is good. Anyway, that is a story where we kind of go, here was this kid called David, he wasn't king at this stage, who kind of turns up on the front line, is confronted by this huge giant, happens to pick up a rock and a sling, throws it, hits him right in the head and poof, all of a sudden he's famous. It's like, it's like, it sounds like one of those you know, Justin Bieber suddenly stories. But what, you, what we often miss in those stories is what really happened there was God took what had been happening inside David for years and years and years when nobody was looking and demonstrated it in public, shouted it from the rooftops. But we don't often focus on... We, I love the story of David and Goliath. It's, just, it's brilliant. I mean, this giant was so big he couldn't miss. We often get intimidated by massive stuff that confronts us. And when it's massive, it's like, cool, I can't miss that. You know, poof. But... We miss the fact that there had been so much taking of ground on the inside of David before that moment happened because he actually says it when all of, the, all of them are saying, ah, you ruddy little thing, and it actually uses that word, but ruddy and handsome meant something good then, didn't it? Apparently, as distinct from a substitute for something else, <laughs> which tends to be more our vernacular. And, um, and David actually says... God protected me when I fought the lion and the bear and he'll protect me now and I'm going to take that uncircumcised Philistine's head off. In other words, this was just another moment in his journey but this one happened to be in public. 
we do the taking ground on the inside bit because that is the pattern of the kingdom is when we take ground on the inside, it becomes an anointing to take ground on the outside. There's a, there's a little verse called, um, little chapter of the Bible in Isaiah 61. You may have heard us talk about it from time to time. Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the and so on it goes. It talks about turning mourning into dancing, but it also, I've got the whole six different verses in my head thing, and the one that I'm trying to pick is the one where um, the day of vengeance of our God, where it talks about, it's real song, Lord, he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight for the blind, um, comfort all her mourn in Zion, to read it out, go. Bestow on their account of beauty instead of ashes, oil of joy, oil of joy instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of. Spirit of despair. Yep. Oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord. Excellent. The day of vengeance of our God that that speaks of, to me, is the day where He takes our captivity and He turns it into a ministry. In other words, He takes the areas where we have had private victory when no one else is looking, and he turns it into a corporate breakthrough. This is why we spend time talking about taking ground on the inside, because we have authority on the outside over what we've taken ground on on the inside. Bill Johnson often says, you only have authority over the storms you can sleep through. So Jesus, yeah, you know the big storm? We know the story. We know the big storm. Everyone's absolutely freaking out. And Jesus is asleep in the boat. And everyone goes, oh, you don't care. But he was just unmoved. Because he had security, peace on the inside. And then when he calmed the storm, all he did was took from the world that was inside him and released it outside of him. And the world outside of him became like the world inside of him. This is what we're going for. And if we can understand how this realm of the heart works and understand how to get freedom there, we'll be able to minister it so much more powerfully. So last week we talked about taking ground in our emotional realm. We got a little bit more pragmatic and then you know, when we workshop, we're going to get even more pragmatic. But there's one more bit that I wanted to unpack. Now, you may remember these guys from the movie Inside Out. I'm actually going to show you a couple of clips from this movie to illustrate a really cool point. Kel, do you mind pulling the door while you're there? Um, The kids are, as usual, having a wonderful time. Thanks. Every now and then, Disney particular, Disney Pixar are amazing at this, pull out this movie that illustrates so much truth for adults and they wrap it up in a kid's movie and then they shove it in your face and then you go, oh my golly gosh, you got me. Um, the first, this came out in 2015. Nathan, was my youngest, was six years old at the time and a few of my clients, because we've been teaching emotional intelligence for a while and I hadn't seen it yet, and a few of my clients said to me, oh, have you seen Inside Out? And I said, oh, no, I haven't had a chance to yet. I don't have a life because um, <laughs> I have three kids and, yeah, um, 
And I said, oh, seriously, you've got to see it. It's everything you're talking about. I thought, oh, okay, cool. So I sat down with Nathan, six years old at the time, and we watched it on the couch. And he's sitting there, he's giggling away and thinking it's great. It's a cartoon. My jaw is on the floor. Because I'm like, oh my gosh, this so powerfully illustrates everything that we talk about. And if any of you have been around me, you know, a while, this message that I'm going to, the point that I want to make across will not be unfamiliar to you, but I feel like it's a really important point to get across in the context of everything that we've been talking about. We talked a lot last week about naming emotions and the importance of when we name an emotion, we tame an emotion because it actually creates a connection in our brain that says, okay, I know what's going on. I can form a strategy to deal with that. I can form a strategy to process that. And we talked about not only naming one, but quite often there's multiple emotions happening at the same time. Now, how many of you weren't here last week and missed that? Okay, only about half of you. All right. So so let me recap very quickly. One of the things I talked about is quite often we'll name anger, for example. We'll have a situation that's in some way painful and we will say, I'm angry. But, and we are, but we often stay stuck. Because anger is not the only emotion we're feeling if we actually dig deep because there are multiple different stimuli, multiple different situations and goals that we have that are acting on us. So I used the illustration last week of one of my coaching clients. I am coming to 3 John 2, by the way, for any of you wondering why you got that out. I'm coming there, I promise. Um, She had this situation where her son, who I think is about 19 years old, he's studying at university in America. He was coming home. We were supposed to have a coaching session on the Tuesday and, sorry, on the Wednesday. No, on the Tuesday, sorry. Whatever day it was, clearly not had enough coffee. Um, And he was coming home. No, I know what it was. We, We had the coaching session on the Thursday And he was supposed to come home on the Wednesday. I got it. I'm back now. All right. Took a while. It was was a day somewhere in the week. Anyway. So yeah, we were meeting on on Thursday. He was supposed to be coming home on Wednesday. So everything was perfect. But then I got a call saying, I have to postpone. Um, Long story. My son screwed up his flights and he's ruined my day. And um, I'm sorry. And we caught up again a week or so after that. Anyway, when we got together, I said, oh, what happened, you know, with your boy? Um, and she's like, well, I was so excited that he was coming home because, you know, she actually likes him, um, which is kind of cool for a parent. Um, and he had, um, how do I say this without saying typical male? What else could I say? Poor organisation, that's better, thank you, yeah. So in his poor organisational skills, um, he had left it way too late to pack his bags, which meant and he got stuck in traffic on the way to the airport, missed his flight, which then meant he missed his connecting flight, which then meant he wasn't coming home on the Wednesday, he was now coming home on the Thursday. Um, now, my client had to then mess up all of her plans. She had all of her meetings perfectly arranged around everything. She is very organised, very ordered, very in control of her world, and he had messed with the plan. And so she knew that she was frustrated. She wasn't kind of white hot angry, but she was yeah, low level anger. And frustrated is in the anger cluster and just a bit lower intensity. And, um, but then we had been doing a lot of work around you know, naming emotions with her because she didn't have a great emotional vocabulary up until that point. She's an accountant. She knew numbers and technical things, but didn't necessarily do all the emotional stuff. 
And so she's, and I said, you know, how did you go that day? And, you know, did he get here? And, and she ended up saying, it was this weird thing, you know, we'd been talking about naming these emotions and I named that I was angry, but I just still stayed stuck. I was still in this blah kind of thing all day. And I said, okay, is it possible that you missed one of the emotions you were feeling? She's like, what do you mean? I said, well, okay, what did we know about anger? What did we say last week about anger? What is anger? It is a primary emotion triggered by a block goal. Her goal was to see her son and to have her world ordered and work around that. That goal got blocked by his disorganisation. And so she named that quite well, but what she hadn't picked up was that in part the goal of seeing him on Wednesday, which is, you know when you're really excited to see someone, you wake up in the morning and go, today's the day, I'm really excited. Does anyone else have that? Okay, good, all right, phew. <laughs> that goal had gone. Now, when a goal is gone, that's called loss. And what is the emotion loss triggers? Grief, sadness. So she named anger, but she'd missed sadness. And so she stayed stuck because that goal of seeing him on Wednesday had gone. And the moment in the session, this was you know, a week and a bit later, um, we, I said, well, you actually lost a goal in there as well. So technically you should have been feeling sad. And she's like, oh. And of course, the moment we named it, the connection happened in her brain. And, and all of a sudden, that emotion in her that she had labelled as frustration and kind of edginess just dissipated instantly. And she's like, oh, that's what it was. I was actually sad as well, but I missed it. And I didn't know. I wasn't aware. So naming often more than one emotion, but in particular where we miss it, is naming the more vulnerable emotions. We're really happy naming anger. We're really happy saying, I'm angry because anger feels powerful. But the more vulnerable emotions like sadness, like I feel hurt, I feel betrayed, I feel afraid, we don't tend to want to name because we don't like the feeling of vulnerability that comes with that. But also, as a result, we tend to stay stuck. Now, coming to these beautiful creatures on our screen here, we remember we had joy which technically is happiness. We have fear, who we'll see very shortly breathing into a series of brown paper bags. We have anger with the head on fire. We have disgust, which is such a class. And then we have sadness, who is always saying, I'm sorry, because, you know, the view is that sadness just makes everything unhappy. Um, so they, they work really hard to keep sadness out of everything. Now, a little quick technical thing. These balls on the shelf, those of you, have, how many of you haven't seen Inside Out, by the way? Okay, there's not too many of you. Your homework is you seriously need to see this movie. I mean, it's a great story, but it's incredibly informative and the neuroscience behind it is rock solid. What are the ball, for those of you who have seen it, the balls on the shelf, what are they? They are, well, put those two together. They're memories, but every memory that is stored in our brain is stored with the emotion that happened with that memory. Because our memory actually sits as part of the limbic part of our brain. And if you want to, if any of you really like brain stuff, so the hippocampus, the hypothalamus and the amygdala are, uh, are the three key things that make up your limbic brain, which is your emotional brain. And why did that go back there? That's supposed to be there. Um, your memories are stored in the emotional part of your brain. 
So when you recall a memory, you actually have the emotion with it. I think I told you the story. Did I tell you the story about the, the people who didn't believe that you could generate an emotion? I said, I can make you angry in 30 seconds. Have you heard that one? I told it a while ago. Long story short. Because memory and emotion are tied together, people often say trying to generate an emotion is fake. It's only fake if you fake it. <laughs> but you can actually do it for real, intentionally. And I said to this group, I can make you angry in 30 seconds. And they're like, oh, yeah, right. This was a bunch of um, frontline electrical workers out in regional New South Wales. So they were all in high-vis shirts. Um, and emotional intelligence was like the biggest oxymoron they had ever heard of. <laughs> um, Don't emotions make you dumb was basically their whole thought. Don't emotions make you dumb. So talking about emotional intelligence was like, what? Complete tilt. Anyway, so I said, I can make you angry in 30 seconds. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to um, just stop. And remember a time where someone really, really you off. And I just got them to sit with that memory for about 30 seconds. And I cannot um, repeat the words that this frontline electrical worker said um, in this company, but um, let's just say I said, okay, how do you feel right now? And he said, I want to kill and continued I'll let down a line, which I won't continue. Um, I'm like, that's interesting. You said we couldn't generate an emotion. 30 seconds ago, you seemed quite happy. Right now, you seem pretty angry to me. And I said, how many of you are actually feeling the emotion of that memory? And all of them went, yeah, I'm feeling it right now. And I said, and you told me you couldn't generate an emotion. See, emotion and memory are actually stored together. Now, these balls here are all memories. And one of the things that you see throughout the movie, which powerfully illustrates what we try and do with life, is we try and keep sadness away. Because we have this goal that says, I want to be happy. Now, I want to be happy. I want people to be happy. But what I want to talk about is what is the road to get there? Because the road to get there is a tad counterintuitive. Let's look at 3 John 2. So 3 John, obviously written by the Apostle John, and he's writing to an elder named Gaius. We're not told which church that Gaius was an elder of. We just know he was an elder of a particular church somewhere that John, the Apostle, uh, John was, this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the books of John, the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, the one who, John is the one who called himself in Scripture the one whom Jesus loved, which I just think is really funny. <laughs> What's well, his third book, not the third? Yeah. Um, like, can you imagine, you know, writing a book about, you know, Jesus, but you happen to include in there the one whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, you know, Jesus' favourite, which just happens to be me. I think that's hilarious. Anyway, moving right along. Verse 2 of 3 John, he says, My beloved, or my brother, I pray that you may prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. One verse, utterly profound. It says, I pray that you may prosper. And if you read it in the Passion Translation, it says, I pray that you may prosper in everything and be of good health in the same way that your soul is prospering. In other words, he's making a link between prosperity. And when we're talking prosperity, don't just think cash here. 
When we're talking prospering, we're talking about being in abundance, being in overflow. So if you are prospering financially, it means you have more than enough. If your soul is prospering, it means you have more than enough emotional energy, more than enough love, more than enough resource on the inside, not only for what you need, but for what others around you need. And then when you're done serving others, you've still got some left. That, that's a prosperous soul. Does that make sense? I have more than enough. I have prospering as I have more than what I need. Now, how many of you get to the end of a day, get to the end of a week and go, I am spent, I got nothing left. Anyone familiar with that feeling? Okay, prosperity of soul, yeah, and I'm, I'm, my hand's up too. <laughs> prosperity of soul is not that, that's enough. And in financial terms, when you know, inputs and outputs are the same, that's survival. I wanna suggest the goal in the kingdom is never survival. The goal in the kingdom is thriving. It is prospering in terms of being in abundance, being in overflow. I have more than enough. And when the spirit of God, who is joy, when the kingdom that is righteousness, peace and joy is inside of us, that is a really good recipe for prospering in our soul realm. If we know how to work with it. Now, what he makes the link is Prosperity on the outside comes from prosperity on the inside. You will prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. Your soul, in the simplest terms, is your mind, your ability to think, your will, your ability to choose, your emotions, which is your ability to feel. Are we making sense so far? All right. What, the question I want to try and answer here is what is the road to a prosperous soul? How do we get to that place where there is more than enough? where we are overflowing with good stuff. Obviously, if you're overflowing financially, you're not overflowing with bills, <laughs> you're not overflowing with bad stuff, you're overflowing with good stuff. You've got more than enough for everything, for every bill, for every need. Emotionally, I have more than enough for every random person that knocks on my door and wants something for me, every needy person that comes into my life, as well as every friend, family member who I love and adore with all my heart and want to give my heart to. I've got more than enough for all of those. And when I'm done with all of them, I've got stuff left over. We're clear on what we're, talk we're going for. All right. So what is the road to get there? It's important that you understand those balls that you can see on the screen, on the shelf from inside out, are emotional memories. Because when you see these scenes and you see Joy carrying around these balls, you, it's kind of important that you understand what it is she's carrying around. She's carrying around memories that have emotion attached. For those of you who don't know the story of Inside Out, Inside Out bases around a girl about 11, 12 years old called Riley. Riley and the movie basically they go they kind of zoom into her eyes and you see those five primary emotions with a big control board here kind of working all the controls of the emotions of an 11 12 year old girl to bring about whatever outcomes they have or, or that she needs and you see the interaction of all of those emotions going on inside her and that's when you see those cartoon characters of emotions show up and do their thing Riley's family, at the beginning of the movie, they lived in Minnesota, massive property, happy as Larry. She played hockey. She loved everything about her life. But because of her dad's work, they had to move to San Francisco. They're now in this small two-story apartment, no backyard. She doesn't know anybody at all. She doesn't have any friends. She hates it. And one day, she decides that she's going to run away from home. This is where we pick up the story, part one is Riley about to run away from home. Have you got audio, Kel? 
interesting, if you, anyone's listening to this on the podcast, I'm going to put the links to these videos in the show notes so that I don't breach copyright by putting them on the podcast. So check the show notes and you'll see this. And if you're listening to this again later, you'll see the links if you want to watch the videos again. Here is Riley about to run away from home. That was our way home. We lost another island. What is happening? Haven't you heard? We try that again. Joy has just fallen into the abyss where memories go to die. So that's the when memory when you know when you say I can't remember this anymore. That that that's that place where the memories essentially go to die. What you're about to see in the next scene is essentially the, the big, there's this big control board that all of those five emotions use to kind of, you know, control Riley's world. And this program has basically locked the control board and there's this one thing that's stuck there that means none of them can control what is going on and everything, as you can see there, is starting to fall down and fall apart. Did you notice Joy, and you notice that kind of glory glow hanging around the character of Joy? Joy is saying to Sadness, which is the blue one, for obvious reasons, because I'm feeling quite blue, don't touch this. The moment she said, that memory, that golden memory ball, Sadness touched it, and Joy goes, no, stay away, I have to keep her happy. And Joy is thinking that the way to keep Riley happy is to keep Sadness from touching anything. And earlier in the movie, Sadness goes around and just touches stuff. And they're like, no, Sadness, don't touch that. And Sadness is always walking around going, oh, I'm sorry, I've done it again. (laughs) Um, And when she touches it, the balls turn blue. And they're trying to say, no, we've got to keep Riley happy. So Sadness, you need to stay away or you're going to ruin everything. Keep that in mind as we watch this next scene because Joy has a bit of a realisation that sadness may have a role to play in them both being able to get back into the control room and get Riley functioning again. Because right now, without the control board functioning, Riley is running away from home and her whole world is falling apart. Let's pick up where Joy starts to pursue sadness. We're home. Riley? Riley? It's okay, you'll see one more where you will at least get some kind of resolution. Did you hear the way that Sadness talked about herself? She said, Riley's better off without me. I make everything worse. This is often the way that we think about sadness. So powerfully illustrated in this movie is that it makes everything worse. Don't touch this memory or you'll make it go bad. Now, there is so much more in this movie. I could have showed the whole thing and pulled out you know, every couple of minutes something incredibly deep and significant, which is why you need this is your homework. If you haven't seen it, go watch it, okay? If you have seen it, go watch it again. Maybe we should have a church showing of it or something. But anyway, sadness feels like I am getting in the way. I am I'm better off without sadness. 
One of the bits that I didn't get time to show you is where Joy essentially realises that sadness is the key. And you'll get a bit of a glimpse of that in this next scene, which only goes for a couple of minutes. But you will see that sadness was the only one that could actually unlock the program that was stuck and actually get Riley back into her right mind. Let's have a little look. That messes me up so bad. <laughs> Do you see the point? Your joy will never be restored unless you're willing to embrace sadness. We think if I keep sadness away, I can be happy. The converse is true. If I don't embrace sadness, if I don't give those painful memories, those painful times in my life a voice and allow them to come into the light, I will never ever experience fullness of joy. Because you can't selectively shut down your heart. And while we've done all this work around naming, making sure we name and label so that we can apply the right strategy to emotions, the one thing I must get across on this journey is those more vulnerable emotions like sadness are actually the key to your joy. The powerful thing in that movie was joy could not be returned until she took sadness with her. Scripture says, you turn my mourning into dancing. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I said this last week. The precondition for receiving comfort is you have to mourn. And the longer that we try and keep sadness off things, the more we block our own joy. We're happy to get anger fired up. <laughs> and use it to blowtorch whatever we need. But embracing sadness is the key. And for some of us in the room, somewhere in our life, whether it is through some negative parenting that we've received, whether it's through negative experiences in the playground, where our tears have been shut down, and since those moments where our tears have been shut down, we've not been able to experience life to the full. And I feel like part of the reason I am put here on earth is to actually activate people's tears again. Because without them, you won't experience joy. Phil Mason, who's a dear friend of mine, actually Phil will be speaking here next week. It will be really cool. Do not miss it. Um, one of his um, people that had been a key part of their church moved to another state to um, study psychology. And I, I think she ended up doing a master's in psychology. And Phil just said, okay, what is the biggest thing that you have learnt in all of your study of psychology? And she said, I can sum that up in one sentence. What you don't process, you will project. What you don't process, 
internally, you will project into your outside world and it will do all sorts of damage. When sadness gets suppressed, it usually comes out as anger directed at people that it's not intended for or who don't deserve it. Or the anger gets turned on ourselves. And that is a recipe for depression. What you don't process, you will project. And there's so many of us, I, mean, I say this so many times, if you've been alive longer than about 20 minutes, you're going to have some pain in your world. And in the West, we do more to medicate our pain than we do to actually process it. But yet the Spirit wants to come alongside us. He is the comforter, after all, and help us process those memories that we've tried to keep sadness off, to try and process all of these things that are sitting on the shelf here so that joy can be returned. One of the key moments in that movie where joy has the revelation that sadness needs to be embraced is when she saw memories of Riley being sad and then being comforted by her parents and realised, hang on, the expression of sadness actually brought connection. Too many church environments are too clinical and we're kind of like, we try and force the joy thing but it feels like a load of bull <laughs> because we don't do real. You're right in the middle of Scripture, there is a book called Lamentations. Do you know what lamenting is? <laughs> it's, the sad, it's, it's what sadness was doing as she was floating around on the cloud with tears flowing down out of the cloud. That is lamenting. It's I'm going to engage with the sad parts of my heart and I'm going to let them have voice. And the sad parts aren't necessarily just somebody has died or something has died in terms of another person. It is often the way I've been treated. It's deferred hope. It's dreams that haven't come to pass. It is, it is school playground experiences where we have been treated horribly. It is anywhere from abusive experiences that are horrific and traumatic through to stuff just didn't, go how, didn't work out how we'd hoped and anywhere in between. And we're actually given tears to help us process those. And a wise old mentor in my life who came into my life at an absolutely profound and strategic time in my life, and I think I may have said this last week or the week before, said, in every painful situation, there's a certain number of tears you need to cry, and once you cry them, you'll be fine. That one piece of advice changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. So when it came to when we lost my dad back in 2011... It was horrible. I, I don't wish that on anyone, but I knew what to do with it. I, I walked into that knowing that we are going to face all the hard conversations. We're going to look each other in the eye. We're going to... We're going to walk this journey without denial. We all know what's going on here, but we're going to talk about it real. And as a result of that, when he finally did go, no regrets. There was not one thing I sat there and said, I wish I had have just been able to say this one thing because we actually said it all. So it was clean. 
It's bloody hard, but it was clean because we'd made a decision. Sadness is actually welcome and is okay. We're going to do real. On um, the back page of the the funeral um, order of service, one of the things I wrote on the back of that, because I'd seen it so many times and it was the last thing I wanted to happen on this particular day, was um, people will go, oh, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to upset you. And I actually said, we need to be upset. Like Our hearts are broken and hurting right now and we need to be upset. So don't not talk about him for fear of upsetting us. Please talk about him because we need to cry. And you doing that actually helps us. Whereas most of the Western world thinks like on the movie, sadness, stay off. Oh, I don't want to upset you. Oh, I've mentioned it. Oh, I've upset you now. I'm really sorry. And I'm like, no, you've actually done the best thing for me. And then Romans 12 tells us what to do when someone cries in front of us. It says, weep with those who are weeping. It's not that hard. It's really simple that in those moments where sadness is expressed, empathy comes to the fore and says the one thing that person needs is not for someone to say, there, there, stop crying. It's it's okay. It's not okay. It's crap. (laughs) It's to actually sit there in the mess with you and cry with you. It's the most powerful thing anyone can do. And if we can develop a culture where we can do that with each other, that is one life-changing space. I want to pray for us because there's a whole lot of us, I'm guessing, that have at some point through painful experiences, some through our own actions and our own choices, we've made vows to say, I will shut that down because we haven't known what to do with it. And some because of the words that others have spoken over us where we have thought that to express sadness, to express tears is a sign of weakness. I don't know if I said this last week or not, but one of the things I learned is that crying is what you do to cope. It's not a sign you're not coping. When you cry, you cooperate with the healing agents that God has put in you, and it helps your heart to heal. It's what you do to cope. It's not a sign that you're not coping. And some of you, because of the reactions of others, particularly authority figures, perhaps parents, when you have cried, they have said hurtful words that have shut that down and you've made a choice to go, that is not safe. I will not do that again. And in later life, you now wish you could. So what I want to do, I want to pray for us. And for some of you, you may be just going, I don't know how to do that. It's been too long. Some of you, it may come easy. And for others for whom it does come easy, you may beat yourself up about that and go, oh, I just cry all the time. And I'm like, you know what? Just do it until you don't need to anymore and you'll be fine. I know that sounds a bit callous and clinical, but I'm, I'm really serious. With compassion... If you feel you need to cry, if you do it until you don't need to, any, to anymore, you will be fine because your heart is trying to tell you something. Your heart is trying to say, I've got stuff I need to detox. <laughs> Pardon me, I've got stuff in here I need to get out. I'm going to ask him to highlight the vows. I'm going to ask him if tears have been shut down for you. I'm going to ask 
the Father to give you revelation of the moment where that happened. And for some of you, once you know that, you'll be able to immediately go, I break agreement with that and do whatever business you need to do. Others, you might need somebody to pray with you um, to help you with that. And for some, it's a journey. It doesn't necessarily happen in a moment. It just takes time. Because when I've continually, if you like, hardened my heart to those emotions, it takes time for that to, to soften up. And that's okay. This is a journey for all of us. So just go into receive mode for a moment. And as I'm praying for you, I just want you to have a keen ear to the voice of the Holy Spirit, but also listen to your heart. Because if as I'm praying, memories are coming up, that is typically the work of the Spirit. Showing you, pay attention to this moment. Pay attention to this memory because something significant happened there. And that's where he wants to release those waves of healing that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. So Father, firstly, I want to thank you that you have designed us with everything that we need for our hearts to heal. And God, I want to ask us, I want to pray especially for those for whom tears have been shut down in some way where we feel like they're inaccessible or they're unacceptable. God, I just shine the light of Jesus onto the moment where that happened, where that vow happened, where that judgment happened, where words from an authority figure, whether it be a parent, a teacher, a sibling, a friend, came and shut that part of our heart down and said, that cannot be expressed. Sadness, out of here. Jesus, I ask you to touch that moment to bring revelation. And I want to speak to every heart in the room right now and say, you're in a safe place. That your voice is welcome here. That where in the past you may have been told, no, we don't do that here or that that's not okay. We want to say, your voice is welcome. Father, for every memory that's coming up, So that the sadness that is inside can come out. God, in the name of Jesus, I take authority over every authority word that has shut down the hearts of your people here. I break the power of that in the name of Jesus and I declare freedom from those words. I speak to chains around hearts and say it's time to hit the ground. <laughs> There's a couple of you, what I'm seeing is a picture of like one of those um, kind of bear traps. It's like the, these jaws that like a bear steps into it 
and these jaws just kind of snap shut over the leg of the animal, whatever it is. Um, and it's like this tr- jaw trap over your heart that snaps shut and, you, and you, you can't pry it open. And what I see is the love of Jesus touching that and just melting the iron. It's like iron is really, you're not going to pry that thing open. You're not going to smash it apart. You're not going to get a hacksaw and kind of get it open. It's too strong. But the, I just see the love of Jesus melting it. And as it's melting, it's taking this rusty old iron and as it's melting, it's turning into gold. One of the things that the prophet Jeremiah rebuked the leaders of Israel for was, you have not healed the hearts of my people. So we know that it is absolutely the heart of a loving father in heaven to heal broken hearts and to turn mourning into dancing. where we felt heavy with negative emotion. He wants to bring joy, but the process of getting to that place where our soul is prosperous and overflowing is through the valley. So God, I want to say on behalf of us, God, we repent for avoiding the valleys. we confess that we've avoided our own hearts, that, that the scariest place on earth has been our own heart. And God, where, where we have made vows, decisions, judgments upon our own heart to shut it down, to close it up, to say, I will never see that, let that see the light of day. God, we just came out of agreement with that now. And we give permission for your spirit to touch those places. And where there's fear around that. I both ask for your peace, but I also ask for courage. Because courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is what you do when you're scared. God, I just release over us courage to look our heart in the eye, so to speak. To look our sadness, to look our pain in the eye. And to give it permission to be voiced. God, where tears have dried up, God, I just break the power of that now. I release even physical healing over tear ducts where they've dried up. Let them flow again. Let the cleansing stream of your spirit flow deep through our hearts, Father.
for some of you, there'll be a whole lot of stuff going on. For others, you know, you might be doing really amazing on this journey. And if that's you, just this is the time for you to minister to others. <laughs> to be that loving embrace of unconditional love that embraces people in their brokenness and in doing so brings healing. For some, you've been ashamed of your pain. And all I can say to you is every time I've watched Jesus handle somebody's pain, when we've been in prayer ministry situations and we've seen what Jesus does with their pain, he treats it so tenderly and so carefully. I've watched him full on torch demons and chains and that, but when it comes to the actual pain, I've watched him treat it like it's this precious thing to him. That's why he says a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a bruised reed he will not break. He's a loving dad. And just like the dad in the end of that movie actually said, I'm not mad, it's okay, and embraced Riley. Our Father in heaven is like that. He says, don't put your pain aside and come to me. Come to me with your pain and let me embrace you. Let me meet you in the midst of it. Because in the midst of it, you will find healing. You will find wholeness. And you will find the road back to joy. And the joy will be a whole lot deeper than any fake, than any drug, than any substance could ever give. Because it's the joy of a heart that is whole and filled with the Spirit who is joy. We just give you permission to do that in us, Jesus. Let that be the story of our community. That we've been brokenhearted, but we are healed and whole lovers and warriors who are ridiculously joyful because of what you have done. Thank you, God. I'm going to land it right there. And again, just like we said last week, if you're doing business with God and you need to keep doing that, let me encourage you to do that. For those on our, on our leadership team, and board and the like, if you can just kind of keep an eye out, if people need prayer, just give a wave. Um, we would love to pray with you if that's what you need. We've still got 40 minutes before those who are staying around need to be in the room down the other end. So just take your time. If you've got business to do with God, don't walk away without doing it. If you're done, you're free. Bless you, gang. Love you guys.